This is Digital Marketing Fastlane. This podcast will show you how to build, launch, grow, and scale a widely successful online business. Listen to real conversations with proven practical strategies and success stories. You're going to learn how to generate more traffic, more sales, more profit, and customer lifetime value for your online store. Coming to you from the online marketing experts at Voy Media, here's your host, Kevin Urrutia. Okay. Hi, everyone. It's Kevin here. Uh, today, I have Kurt Foreman from Brewfest Partners. Uh, hey, Kurt. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Doing great. Perfect. Uh, Kurt, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and then maybe how you got started with your business? Sure. So, actually, I started Brewfest Partners approximately 17 years ago as a part-time venture. Um, quite honestly, I didn't expect to be doing this as a full-time venture. I had a very nice career with a uh, manufacturing company. Uh, as a sales and marketing director, but um, I did my first project back in uh, 2004, actually started planning for that in 2005. And it wasn't until almost five years ago, five years ago, I think the 21st of March will be five years that I, I walked away from from that job to do Brewfest Partners full time because the number of projects I took on kept uh, growing and growing. And uh, I really felt there was an opportunity to grow the business further. How did you feel like when you decided, what was that moment like when you decided, hey, like five years ago, I, I want to do this full time and then leave your other old job that you've been there for so long, such a long yeah. time. So, you know, I, I don't really exactly have a timeline, but I've always had this entrepreneurial drive in me. Most corporations really do not, larger uh, institutions or organizations really don't appreciate entrepreneurialism because you're, you're kind of, you know, siloed into what your responsibilities are. So it was probably seven years ago or two years before I left my company that I started to, to really plan for an exit to be able to do this full time. To do this 12 or 13 years and prove out the model uh, was more than enough time. I just was not in position to, to do it, to, to leave earlier. And I wished I could have, yep. uh, but it's either here nor there. That's just what the cards that were dealt me. And then sort of how did you kind of manage both of those things? Like, you know, when you're, you were starting out, I guess, essentially, you were working on this for 12 years while still, you know, doing your full time. How did you kind of manage your time? I guess your, your self personal time and also maybe family time. Yeah, um, very, very good question. It was insane. <laughs> <laughs> and as I look back at it, I would think that most anybody who was watching me do this was probably thinking I was a little uh, insane. So it was very difficult. Uh, my, my job that I had was requiring me to travel internationally. So I'd be on different time zones and working on projects, uh, or I'd come home from the office at six o'clock and I'd work until midnight, sometimes one o'clock on projects. My lunch hour, I really didn't take any vacations. So I was using it for, for building this business. For me, it was doing what was necessary to make sure this thing was going to happen, right? And I had a longer view of, of where I wanted to be. And I was fully aware of the risks that I felt that I was taking, but I also felt there was enormous risk by me not making the decision I made. From that standpoint, the balance was hard. I mean, my family and my wife saw what I was doing and, and uh, it did take time away from a lot of those things. Those are things you just have to come to terms with because I, 
it always looks different once you get into the, the, the details and it does when you first got started and you had an idea that I was going to go play golf in my golf league every Thursday, you know, as soon as I left my job, I left my golf league because I didn't have time for it anymore. So do you think that's like a good idea for other entrepreneurs to be doing that kind of, like you said before, it's you're working full time, but also doing this maybe on the side and using up all your spare time um, as in, you know, just with cash flow or, you know, essentially funding your own business. Yeah. I mean, every scenario I imagine will be different uh, for an entrepreneur. Um, I, I think the bottom line is you have to do what's necessary. I'm, I'm a very driven person for better or worse. And I knew what it was going to take. And I very passionate about my business and I threw everything I could at it. And many times I threw energy at it to make up for my lack of knowledge or expertise or, or smarts in some case, you know? So if I tell people you need to find a balance, I would be probably lying. I mean, I've not found that balance. It's hard. Yeah. It's, we've talked to other people. It's when you're running your own business, even for me, like I wake up thinking about it. I go to bed thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow or just like in general, it's really hard to completely disconnect. And uh, at least for like uh, maybe guys like us where we're just growing our business and it's not there where we want it to be yet. I think, that's sort of the dream that we're always chasing is when is that going to be there yet? But yeah. you never know because it's always changing and, and it's always next year. It's a little bit higher or something like that. Yep. Yeah. I mean, there are points in time where I feel like I've reached burnout and I try to find a way to, to um, recharge my batteries. I feel like I have arrived, mm -hmm. but I'm also going through the stage now where how much larger, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much a, a one-man person with part-time people that are doing secondary gigs. Um, I have a very unique model, and that's where I pull my resources from. But I'm always thrilled to find new opportunities and, and certainly flattered when people say they want to work with me. Projects come and go. Sometimes, you know, they don't take off. So you have to be willing to emotionally cut the cord from those things that are not profitable or don't work out well and then get yourself into something else. And I've been fortunate that project opportunities continue to roll in every year, even sometimes when you go weeks and, or months and you feel like, okay, what's going to happen? And all of a sudden, boom, you know, well, you know, we're doing five new projects this year. Oh, wow. Um, so like I said, everyone is a little different, but you know, that's how we, that's how we deal with that. And then I just want to go back into sort of something you said earlier before, like you said, you have a lot of drive, sort of, where did that drive come from? Was it like something your family, you know, was it something you always grow up, grew up with? You know, what kind of drives you to, you know, be more successful? I, like entrepreneurs are very driven. I kind of want to know, where does that come from from, from you? Yeah, I, I believe it's a personality trait. You know, I, I'm, you know, if I look at my personality, I, I've always, um, you know, I wasn't the best student for a whole host of reasons. Uh, but I, I always, and I was afraid to try. I was afraid of failure when I was younger. Um, I had three older brothers, much older than me, uh, who were very athletic and, and well-liked and, and good in school. And I, and I always felt growing up that at some point I just didn't have the confidence that I could be like my brothers, although I idolized them and maybe to a wrong point. But I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. My dad was a serial entrepreneur. Um, Full disclosure, he wasn't a really good business person. He failed at a lot of things. And I worked for him from the time I was 12 years old through probably 18. Mm -hmm. I learned more by working 
uh, for my dad in a small little mom and pop business, whatever one he decided to get involved in. Uh, and I learned from his failures. And, um, and that was really the, uh, I don't know how to say it, that was the best education I could have ever gotten. And it served me really well. I mean, I am a risk taker, but I'm, I'm not, I don't shoot from my hip. Um, I guess on a, I always say on a scale of one to 10, I'm probably a seven. <laughs> you need to take risks, yeah. You know, and you do. And you don't want to get paralysis from analysis, you know, and not make decisions. And I've caught myself doing that as well. I'm fortunate that the vast majority of the bigger decisions I've made have worked out well. And when we've, when I've made these mistakes, I try to learn from them like anybody else. And sometimes it's hard when you're used to doing things the same way mm -hmm. to not get yourself set up for failure again after you've just gone through something. So, you know, that's kind of my background. I, I've always kind of been a fighter that way. I, not in the physical sense, but in the struggle. I like to struggle. I like to win. I like to find my way. And I like to prove others wrong. No, um, that, that totally makes sense. I, similar to, I guess, my background is, you know, we, we grew up, I have two uh, older brother, older sister, and a younger sister. But, like, my brother and I were always working with our dad. We were, like, 10, 11, kind of following whatever rent. Right side projects he was working on and that's sort of where we got like our work ethic from and saw him doing things so I guess that's where you know I figured that's sort of what I wanted to do and like like you I wasn't good at school and I just like never really liked it but I've always felt like I'm unemployable I always tell people like I'm unemployable I literally cannot have a job because I just have too many of my own ideas and I want to do my own thing every single day sure. so it's one of those gifts and curse you probably have that as well where you just have so yeah. many ideas you just want to execute and then you're just like, I got to focus on this because it's working right now really well. Yeah. That was my main frustration in 30 years of working for, uh, you know, in, in a traditional work setting where it was hard to advance and sell your ideas, uh, especially when you're an, a change agent. That, that caused me a lot of conflicts. It caused, it, you know, it's, it's just the way I am. And, and I sometimes, uh, you know, uh, run over people with my ideas because yeah. I'm so passionate about them. And, and it's not meant to be disrespectful. It's, it's meant to be, you know, it's just meant to be that I, I want to see this thing work through. And uh, it became evident to me that in the environment that I was in, that I was compensated extremely well, but they weren't using me, my skill set and what I could offer for growth. Yeah. And I was seen as a threat by a number of people. And, uh, and it was painful for everyone, myself and everyone around me and my team who worked for me and who saw me going through that. Yeah, yeah. sometimes I guess, yeah, sometimes you just got to leave the environment you're in to pursue your own goals and destiny because other people don't see it. And kind of like what you said, sometimes people feel friend by just your skills because they're not as driven or motivated as somebody on their team. And then perfect. Okay, so I want to go back to kind of what you said, like, you know, throughout your, I guess, 17 years of doing Brewfest, You've experienced kind of like burnout. What are some ways that you've done or you used to sort of, you know, I guess not feel burnout or get out of that symptom that you kind of just feel like you're working too much? You know, you just have to find the right time where you feel you can step away and, and you know, develop uh, some type of system where you can recharge your battery. And, and I, I don't, can't say that I actually have one per se. I know when I'm fresh and exhilarated and excited and can work. And then I also know that when I have kind of a brain block or I feel like, you know, we came off a project that there was, you know, 
12 to 16 hour days for four days straight this last weekend. And, you know, I'm 50, going to be 58 this summer. You know, it took me a while. It was a very successful project. I had a great time doing it, but I, I just could only bite off a little bit each day this week because I, I was tired physically, emotionally, mentally, <laughs> I was tired. And so I'm kind of getting myself back into that. So I don't force myself to work when I can't because I, you know, I've learned from my past experience that when I'm prepared and ready to work and I feel like I want to, I can get, I can make up for all that lost time. And so I've convinced myself, and this was a recent development over the last couple of years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Sometimes I guess, I mean, even for me, I, I just, just put in the hours and feel like you're really doing something, but you're not doing as much as you could be if you just have a good solid, you know, four or five hours of maybe working being distracted with everything else because you're kind of just like randomly checking things here and there and it's not really work that's moving the needle can you i guess can you talk to more about like your actual company brewfest and sort of what it does and sort of maybe how you got into it or maybe are you a huge beer lover is that something that's uh yeah. part of your life right sure sure well um i've been doing events for pretty much my entire adult life i mean i was even doing events in high school you know Didn't I like to i've always like yeah. getting people together oh so you're always like bringing people together as a connector type of yeah i like planning the events i, I could conceptualize things very small things yeah. you know some things were mischievous <laughs> but um when i was in college i i came up with a, an idea for a music festival for my hometown of racine wisconsin it was in the throes of planning a new lakefront uh, it was right on lake michigan so they were planning a brand new marina festival park and lakefront development and um i wasn't really pleased with kind of the entertainment offering in the city of about eighty-five thousand. to make a long story short i went about the process of thinking about what kind of event that would do well here with this new facility. And there was a number of different things that happened in that sequence, but over probably from my first idea of conceiving, it was in 1982. Uh, by 1988, we had a 20,000 person festival and, and I had no experience in doing anything like that, you know, and that became a really big icon of the community where we had a, you know, a four day event drawing 35 to 40,000 people. And, um, we had a working board of directors and I wasn't paid. No one was paid really to work on this thing. And it was really a passion and an obsession by, you know, our group of 12 people. And I, I burned out of that. Uh, and a lot of the relationships that I had in that organization uh, just kind of were fray because the direction I wanted to see us go versus where a lot of other people were trying to take it. And uh, so I left in 2002, but before I left in 2001, I actually, pitched the board of directors about doing a beer festival. And uh, we really worked on the music festival about nine months out of the year. You know, it was a social thing. We were friends. We were professional. It was probably one of the most professional nonprofit uh, volunteer organizations I've ever seen. But no one wanted to do a beer festival. It was just another one of Kurt Foreman's ideas. And it cost everybody a lot of work. The other one did. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, it's one of those things that if, if anything has changed my trajectory of what I've become. It's because that board of directors said no. Mm -hmm. Had they said yes, I would have been working on that project for free still today. Yeah. You know? um, and, but the, the fact that they said no, and it just got put on the shelf after I left that board the next year, I went about finding a group that would want to do it with me. Mm -hmm. And I did it for pay. You know, I did it for profit. Yeah. 
I found a nonprofit that could get the licensing. So the model really is based on this is we do events in, you know, seven, eight different States now and do consulting all the events that we own. We work with a local nonprofit partner uh, primarily to, uh, We'd be able to get a beer license because we don't carry a license and also to be able to collaborate and create as much of a localized event that will most, most of the time it supports a cause that my wife and I feel worthy of support. And so many times we get all of our resources in terms of manpower, volunteers, uh, connection to the community through these partnerships that we do throughout the country. And then for these, for these events, do you, does your team like reach out to like local organizations or do they come to you? Cause they, I mean, maybe now they've been, you're known, but in the beginning, did you reach out to them and say, Hey, like Wisconsin? Yeah, it's, that's pretty interesting. I, I will say that we, it's been a combination, but that was in the early years, as you pointed out, where we would go out and try to find somebody that fit our criteria. And we have written criteria for everything that we do, but um, really the vast majority in the last five, six years have been groups that have found us and we had to vet them, find out if, you know, yeah. uh, and the ones, it seems like the ones that found us are the ones who are really want to see it happen. We don't have to sell them. They, they, they're selling us on working with them. So it's a little bit of a reverse yeah. relationship that way. And then do you ever work with, I guess, for-profit companies or is that just a different thing or different licensing type of deal that you would do? Sure. Um, we have worked with a few for profit um, and, and those are fine. I mean, again, I, I, I believe in what nonprofits do if their mission's aligning with what my beliefs and, and, and expectations are. Uh, but I believe in profit as a motive because it makes you better. It makes you control expenses. It makes you uh, shoot, shoot for excellence because you're going to be measured on the success of that event. And uh, the idea of excess profit and you, know, you make too much money, you know, I just think that's all garbage because once you achieve a certain level, if you're not consistently working on having a healthy enterprise on your P&L, you're, you're going to be destined to, to fail. I mean, you have to forever prune the tree and get rid of things that aren't working and change pricing strategies and change management and, and, and those, that's, a, that's an ongoing task for every single one of these events. And, and we, we really need to be better at doing that. But I think that's the one thing that's the takeaway, I think, for I don't care if you're in for-profit business or non-profit business, you still have to run an exceptional enterprise to be able to be sustainable. Yeah, you just need to run something that's efficient and sort of every year look at some of the cost-cutting uh, cost costs that you could do to just sort of make your business more profitable. Correct. And then sort of with these events, are, I guess for your business, um, are you guys like, what, what, what's like sort of the limitation? I know you said this year you're doing about six or seven, right? Did you say your limitations are just people or just can you have like, let's say 20 events a year? Is that something well, that- Well, we're, we're going to do probably 28 events this year, large and small. And our, our limitations are this, is the limitations begin and start with me. <laughs> yeah. and, and the reason I say that is that, you know, we, we've, we've discussed how to scale this business. And what makes us different, especially in our consulting partnerships, where we don't own the events, but we're there to, to make, and we, and we are hired to manage and create the event for somebody else's. They're expecting our expertise and you have to be on the ground to see what's going wrong and to train people and to react where they have no experience whatsoever in how to do these things. 
since this thing all runs through me, the only way I could see to change this is and to make it bigger and more complex is to either go out and buy another agency that has an existing portfolio of events, and then we build on being able to have the staff. Problem with that model is I'm just really at my point in time in my life, like an ad agency. I don't know if I want to do the ups and downs of hiring and firing staff every year based on who's coming back to the party. So the, the model is a little hard to scale. It's not like having an ongoing product, yeah. uh, except for you do have an annuity with the existing festivals you have. So that's a challenge. And the way we overcome that is by having automated systems for doing a lot of things that we're doing. Do you also own your own events that you host, I guess, like locally, or is that not something that you're... Yeah, I mean, we, we, most of our, most of the events we have, we own the intellectual property, the name, the branding, all the platforms. Uh, we can change groups if, if they don't want to be part of it, you know, so we do own that, uh, most of those. Uh, we just came up with the concept of the pop-up beer garden, which is a, a mobile beer garden. We're working with Hof Brauhaus Brewery out of Munich. And we started that as a trial last year, and now we'll have probably seven this year. And so that gives us the opportunity to kind of roll that out na nationally with them. That's cool. Do you guys have, do you have any events in New York City this year? Uh, no, I mean, that's a market I'm really, I'm not, you know, <laughs> I'm a little overwhelmed as it is. Our thing is now is a saturated market in terms of craft beer events. We, we're trying to pick new, new projects very carefully when it comes to the traditional craft beer event where it's ticketed. Um, and that's why one of the directions we went with the beer garden, we think that presents a good opportunity for what we do. And I'm not opposed to looking at any opportunities in any markets, but I will tell you, you know, it's expensive and, and complicated to go further away from your home base, but we have done it. I mean, we're in New Jersey, we're in Pennsylvania, we're in Florida. So, you know, I, we look at these all individually to see if they make sense. And then for, let's see, how much would like, uh, I'm not sure if you can give like price ranges, but how much would like, a, an event cost for something like this? So, I mean, if you add cost of goods and everything into it, probably somewhere around anywhere from thirty to $60,000. Okay. You know, smaller events, not so much. It's, it's predicated on more on cost of goods. I, I'm not a macro guy that way. I like to get in, you know, it's, I always like, I never worked for a super large company, but I, I always like to be able to have my hands on the pulse of what's going on and work with people and and not be too disconnected and that's really my comfort zone and then for that 30 to you know i guess sixty thousand, how much of that goes into like i guess marketing the event i'm, gonna, I'm assuming because i saw on your website that you guys also help market is that yeah. part of the like so not including the startup but it, this is a actual ad buys we're not really spending more than spend mm -hmm in that range of four to $6,000 for an event. Now that doesn't include the startup of a website and you know, all the things that go into time that takes to do all the platforms from Instagram to uh, Facebook and Twitter accounts, getting all that set up. While those things don't cost money, they take time to, and then the branding. Uh, you know, we, we really pride ourselves on having really nice branding for all of our events to set us aside from some of the other operations out there and try to build some value that way. Yeah, I, everybody should just check out your website because all the events that you have, the logos are really good. And I was just like, I was like, who designs these? They're really good. And it's like, yeah, we probably have four different designers through all those. I, I have one thing I, I start, I, I became many, many years ago is I became kind of a brand freak. I went through training with a, with a consultant to understand uh, why people make buying consumer decisions or, or what, what's credible, what, what creates that credibility for them and to understand 
that relationship between right the first time you see a brand, the first time you engage a brand, what makes people believe it. If you have to try to convince them later on uh, with mixed messages, it's you know it's got to look it's got to look like these guys know what they're doing. Even though with new new events, we might not look we yeah. like it. Oh, yeah. Who is this person that you you guys trained with? And was it like a year training or what was the training? Yeah, no, his his name was uh, Edward A. Earl, Earl with an E on the end. Uh, He had a consultancy in Dallas, Texas. I think it was in Dallas. And uh, I was referred to him by uh, a guy that I knew that used him. I don't know if he's in that business anymore, only because he used that business to buy equity into bigger companies uh, by transforming them through branding. And so he, I think he made millions of dollars doing that. I, it was, it was a, an all day, eight in the morning till eight at night training. And I went out to California where they were doing this. And uh, um, it, it was, it was, um, it was a game changer for me. I was running a small, I was, in addition to my sales and marketing directorship with this manufacturing company, I was given the reins of this small little $3 million company out in Maine that we just acquired. And I went and changed the name of the company and without approval based, based on, on this branding thing. And then after we got all done, I ran it by the CEO, you know, and I figured, you know, he's either going to think it's great or he's going to fire me. And um, it really changed their trajectory. And I was a firm believer. That was my, that was kind of my incubator to see if this stuff really worked. That's good. And how how much was that that course or training cost back then? Um, it was uh, basically, it was one of those things where it was free. You had to pay for yourself to go out there. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to sell you on executing the rebranding or branding of a product. You know, so we turned over, you know, we, I forget what we spent, but it's probably like 50, 60,000 we spent with them. They wrote the brand story. They wrote the attributes. They interviewed our customers. They, it was pretty thorough. So it's, it's kind of like the online version of what you see now with yeah, I'm going to move to the next room. I got to plug you in, man. I'm, I'm running low on power. Bear with me. It's Yeah, it's like the online version of what you see online webinars, and they kind of pitch you for their product. But this is like, I like this better. It's like you go there, you learn, you talk, you interact with the people, and then you do that. Okay. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was extremely, it was a game changer for me. Absolutely. I drove everybody in my co- company nuts because I started rebranding products, and uh, they, they just thought I was, you know. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, okay, yeah, we just have about two more questions. So what are some like books or maybe that you would recommend to other entrepreneurs that have helped you? Clearly, like this branding course has, you said, changed the trajectory of your company and sort of how you view brands. Maybe what's another course or, some, or another person that can help other entrepreneurs look at things this way? Well, I spent, I don't have time or don't take the time and I wish I did, but I, I spent a lot of time reading um, you know, I, I subscribe to the Wall Street Journal. I spend time reading books about branding and about sales, you know, not looking at any one of these things as the, the Bible, but it's kind of building blocks. I mean, really what it comes down to is you, you got to have wants. I mean, you have to want to learn every single day um, and believe that you're not the end game. You know, a lot of people I know that I hear, I see, you know, they want to be an entrepreneur simply because they want to be their own boss. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's only one small facet. It has to really be a driver for you. And you have to see the, the end game, the long game, but you have to keep learning every single day. There's so many of my contemporaries that have not done that. And mm-hmm. I'm not talking about entrepreneurs, but uh, I just feel like I've continued to learn and I, and I continue to evolve and, and get better at things and try to improve on other things. 
Yeah, I think exactly what you said. I think some of the best entrepreneurs that we look up to and even the people I know, kind of like yourself, constantly learning new things and sort of getting better. And there's always this feeling of, I just need to learn more because it just excites you. Like, I mean, I could tell like by talking about Brian that you're just excited about it. It's something that you really love and are passionate about it. And I think exactly what you said, entrepreneurs, the best entrepreneurs are always learning. Like people was asking like, oh, how do I can become like Elon Musk? I'm like, there was a good uh, Quora post about it. And, and then his wife was like, first of all, he wouldn't be here. He would be doing and executing and learning how to, exactly the question you're asking for and that's sort of what people are saying like yeah. like you said earlier before it's like sometimes entrepreneurs get caught in that analysis paralysis where they're just just thinking about it versus executing yeah perfect and then just the last question is you know where where can we go to learn maybe more about yourself or your company i would just you know google my name i mean I, my website uh, has a small uh, synopsis i guess or overview of my background and um so brewfestpartners.com and i guess I think that's pretty much it. And in addition to what you've seen on the interview. When is your most recent event? I think it's going to be March 7th, right? Uh, yeah, we have one next week in Wellington, Florida. It's a Hofbrau pop-up beer garden. We just did a beer festival down there two weeks ago. And then we have a little bit of a lag before we start again in June. Yeah, and, and then pretty much June through now, we have two new projects for October and one for November. So pretty much it's going to be solid with a f maybe four weekends off. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much, Kurt. Appreciate your time. Uh, I've learned a lot talking to you. Uh, same, same here. I appreciate your time as well. This week's episode of Digital Marketing Fastlane was brought to you by the performance marketing experts at Voy Media. Join us again next time as we'll be bringing you more tips, techniques, and know-how to make your online business the very best that it can be. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, we'd love to hear them on Twitter at Voy Media. Thank you.